Most Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Britt, how are you? Good. How are you, Bill? I am doing so good. What's new and exciting in your world? I have just really loved, I, I encourage anyone who's listening to go back and listen to the episode you did where you just talked about all the cool things that are happening under the umbrella of Mormon mm. discussion. And I'm just really excited to see how this podcast and all the other podcasts um, are really just kind of going to blossom into their own thing. And we're going to talk about bringing another one on today. And so I'm just really, really excited for all the things that were going on. Each podcast has its own like little niche of what they're doing. And I'm glad that we're doing this one because this is like where I want to be, which yeah. is people deconstruct. That's great. And then it's like the question of, well, what now? And the past couple of guests, like we've had on and discussions, we've really been just exploring the topic of <clears throat> like, what next? What now? What do I do now? You know? And so we'll have discussions between the two of us, or we'll bring on someone who has like a really flourishing spiritual life post-faith transition so you can just kind of see other options and so i'm really excited for our podcast especially because i love what we're doing but all the other ones too <laughs> it, it's been fun because we've had conversations where you know we we and the get the guest is you know talk about phil mclemore for instance mm -hmm. um very experienced has a ton of wisdom but has a slightly different angle or perspective and i love this space where we we're all kind to each other, but we get to kind of push and figure out kind of where these nooks and crannies of, of humanity kind of go. And um, everybody's doing it a little different. And we're just trying to give people, I guess, uh, uh, some, some concrete and not so concrete ways to approach being a human. Yeah. Um, I hope, I hope in a few years we can look at this podcast and really see like, just a charcuterie board of like, yeah. you know, really flourishing spiritual lives where people could get on kind of post faith transition and say, I really liked that what that Sufi guy was doing. I'm going to check that out. Or I really, yeah. you know, we're going to have on Noah Rochetta who's doing some beautiful stuff with secular Buddhism. We have, um, uh, Jared Anderson, who's going to come on, who's doing some humanist stuff in Salt Lake. And we just, we just have a lot of people that we've lined up that are really, have kind of navigated their own paths. Oh, we got um, John. Oh, what is his last name? John Ogden, who's going to talk oh, to yeah. us about us. Who's, you know, he's really focusing on what do you do with children after you kind of go through a faith transition yeah. and he's tackling that side of it. And so I really hope as we keep doing this over the next few years, we'll just really see just like a wide variety of what does a flourishing spiritual life look like post faith transition and so hopefully that will give people at least something they can listen. And I resonate with this and I don't resonate with this. And we can start taking some steps forward. So I'm just excited for what we're doing here. And I'm excited for our guest today. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. This is one of the cool podcasts. We'll get into the story, but we will bring uh, her on. Terry, how are you doing? Oh, oh let me unmute so you there. Much. Sorry. Yeah, oh, please say that again. How are you go. doing today? 
I'm doing so well today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited to talk about the topics for today. Yeah, we're excited too. Let me give a little bit of background. Uh, Britt and I were doing an episode on consent. And in my mind, I was going to approach it talking about uh, just kind of uh, society consent with medical studies and, and medical uh, treatments. Uh, we were talking about kind of consent generally. We we're talking about sexual consent. And then Britt came along and said, hey, Bill, you've got to check out this podcast. It's this podcast called Emancipate Your Mind. And uh, it was on consent and coercion. And the two of us listened to it. And I got to say, it was phenomenal. And Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. And I reached out to you and said, hey, you know how, like your, your work is really good. I listened to another one before I talked to you. And I said, man, your work is really good. What kind of interest are you getting? Because I, I think you've got a podcast that should be well listened to. And I think people just didn't know about you. Mm -mm. And so uh, you told me the number of uh, views that you were getting. And I said, man, I think we could, we could help if you want to join up with us. And you asked a bunch of good questions and, and we sat with, uh, with some of those and tried to figure out how we could best support you. And you said, let's, let's do it. Let's jump on board. And so the Emancipate Your Mind podcast is the newest podcast under the Mormon Discussion Incorporated umbrella. Yeah, super exciting. <laughs> it's been fun. And uh, I just wanted to say welcome aboard. Thank you. I'm loving it so far. I think we're into this, what, a couple of weeks at this point. Yeah. Um, and already it's it's been a really fun experience to get to talk with so many people that are used to your work and we're becoming acquainted and I'm hearing their questions and yeah. getting to kind of plan podcasts around the things that they're wanting to hear. So very excited. Bill and I have been binging your podcast in preparation for, for talking to you and we've been sharing them and um, and talking about it and Bill's listened to a couple with Amanda too. And so it's just been really nice to, we've been just loving your voice and just want to do whatever we can do to send it out into the universe. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I've yeah. gotten to listen to a few of your podcasts as well, Britt. So lots of great ideas about spirituality and it's, I'm letting them like sink in and figure out, you know, where I want to go with those topics. I haven't touched on spirituality too much on my podcast. Mm, so interesting. Yeah. I wanted to get us started. You're in this really interesting space where you have a deep competence of the topics that you're talking about. That to me seems so dang obvious. And yet you also have your own religious deconstruction story. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious if, uh, if Britt and I thought it would be a great idea. And by the way, Britt, when talking about the guest earlier, I think you've done a fabulous job kind of getting guests together and stuff. So I appreciate all the work you're doing. Um, I wanted to ask you, Terry, if you would mind maybe jumping into your story and helping us understand how somebody's on the receiving end of religious trauma and programming and then comes out the other side being what I think is a really wise voice helping people understand that trauma and that programming. Yeah. So I'll try to make this as concise as possible. Um, this is something I've actually been thinking about quite a bit how you know how did we go through this and i think a lot of it really starts with the fact that my my family are converts to the mormon church they came from an evangelical background and my mother converted to um she converted to mormonism when i was an infant my father converted to mormonism from catholicism whenever i was about seven or eight years old he you know got the priesthood and everything but not in time to baptize me um 
And so it, well, to baptize me, but not confirm me. Sorry. Let me, let me fix that. So I grew up with a lot of like an amalgam of ideas about Christianity. Um, I grew up going to vacation Bible study with my grandparents and with my aunts um, who were trying to save me secretly, right? From what my mother had done with her spiritual journey. And so I, I kind of grew up with all of these different ideas and kind of looking at religion from all of these different aspects, um, going to lock-ins with my Methodist friends and with my, you know, see you at the pole and just all of these different things. So I had this very evangelical sort of upbringing as well as a Mormon upbringing. Um, and I was raised in a Mormon ward where it was a bunch of converts. So it was a whole bunch of converts. There really weren't any deeply rooted LDS people in our ward. So we had people coming from Southern Baptist roots and Methodist roots and Catholic roots and just all these different places. Um, and it was a very, I loved that ward. Um, mm -hmm. I still love that ward. And it, it was a, a, a very open place to kind of think and, and create ideas on your own. And then I went away to BYU. I moved every year of high school, moved to Argentina, moved to South Carolina, moved to all of these different places where I was exposed to Mormonism in different ways. Um, some of them much more fundamentalist and some of them less fundamentalist. And then I went to BYU. And I think that's really where my Mormon identity really took root. Um, and so simultaneously, while I was kind of going through the high demand indoctrination about how I should dress and what I should be as a woman and who I should be as a Mormon and all of those things, I was also simultaneously getting a degree in psychology with my husband. So our degrees were both in marriage, family and human development. Um, as newlyweds, we were, you know, cleaning the MARB building on campus at four in the morning and having discussions about these really deep um, psychological and philosophical topics and really talking about um, just like how did those fit into our lives and into our relationship and all of those things. And that, I guess, that sort of way of looking at the world and approaching our relationship really has carried through our entire relationship. And he's become a marriage and family therapist. When he got his master's degree, I read all of his textbooks. We talked about those things, just like we talked about our bachelor's degree. And even though he got the degree and I did not, the master's degree, and I did not, I got the bachelor's, but not the master's. Um, I've been delving into and reading all of the books he brings home. And so the crux, I guess you could say, of of this whole journey was when I was 30, I was diagnosed with clinical depression. I had tried to fit myself into that Mormon box I learned about when I was 18, 19, 20 um, at BYU. I, I had been shoving more and more pieces of myself into that box, trying to be the good girl, like the good Mormon. And um, over the course of the, the time, lost myself. I lost who I was. I lost and I had shoved so many emotions in that box too, things that felt unfair, things that were bringing me cognitive dissonance that I just, honestly, I, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't wear the mask anymore. And um, I ended up breaking down, went to a secular therapist because I was in England at the time and, um, you know, sat down with me and, and he started helping me deconstruct I think some of the ideas of what it meant to be a good person, 
as well as helped me start to identify my emotions. And the better I got at identifying what I was feeling and what I was thinking, the more I started to notice control mechanisms at church. And the more I started having questions about that and I started having um, doubts about that, my husband was on his own journey. Neither of us were talking about this journey of having some dissonance. Um, until one day he was really brave and, and, you know, while he's washing dishes, just said, I have something difficult to tell you. And I'm thinking he's going to tell me he's had an affair or, you know, something like that. And he said, I, I'm having some serious doubts about the church. And, um, from there, like it opened up discussions about that and, and moved us to this place. And so, because I had a licensed therapist and a background with therapy, and just all of this experience with kind of deconstructing old thought patterns. I think we went through a faith transition in a way that I think was a lot more aware than maybe your average person. So, and we had a lot more support. We had other therapist friends at his office that had already deconstructed or begun that process a year or two before us. So we had a big community of therapists that were sitting and talking about religious topics with and about, you know, all of that. So that's how we got to this point. And as we started hosting ex-Mormon groups, started realizing a lot of people didn't have these tools. And I started feeling obligated to share them and and talk about them more in a public space. So that's how it all got started. That was long, but that was like the short version of something very, very long. That was so beautiful. I have like a, like, 20 follow-up questions, but Bill, do you want to go first? Do you have something? No, no, <laughs> there's, no, so um, much, there's so much there to dig into and thank you for sharing your story. You're yeah. I, the only, the, um, the thought that comes to mind, the pressing thing that you said, and by the way, I'm happy to have you go first, Britt, and ask something. I have the, too the, many. You go. Okay. I'll filter. So, so it's the belonging and the fitting in, which you just hit on, which is this, this idea that there's a box. And even as you're talking about seeing therapists, the system that all three of us came from even told you which therapist you could see, right? Like here's LDS family services. These are the people you go see. And so at every turn, the system turns you back around to itself and it tells you that it's got the answers. And you're constantly trying to figure out how you show up in the world as yourself. And you don't even know how to find safety to even ask the space around you if you're even allowed to show up as you. Like, like my wife and I in the last five years have had so many conversations where I just, I just ripped myself open and said, this is what's going on inside me. Outwardly, I've been pretending to be something else so that I could be this really good Mormon. And maybe I'm not exactly that. And it's, it's been a hard journey because the system and society at large, but the system never prepared us. I know I'm just rambling here, but your thoughts on high demand systems in the huge amount of compromise they impose on you to fit in a box. Any thoughts there? Yeah, let me make sure I'm understanding this question right. So you're talking about like, what what does that do when you feel like there are parts yeah. of you you have to mask or hide? And what does that mean for our identities and our sense of self? Did I hear I that right? It. Yeah, please. Okay, so um, basically what happens is in high demand systems, there are authorities and there are followers. There are people that are in charge, they have the power. 
and there are people that don't. And this happens not just in high demand religions, it happens in high demand families, it happens in political systems, it happens in educational systems. And um, understanding that really came from Steve Hassan's work with um, mind control and what that looks like across different systems and the bite models. So that's really where I started kind of thinking about this idea. And really what happens is when we don't feel safe, especially as children, when we don't feel safe to be all of ourselves, when there are certain things that are considered right and certain things that are considered wrong. So especially when we're in a system that's binary, where there are right ways to be and wrong ways to be, there's good and there's evil, there's light and there's dark. When we're in those systems, then whether or not anyone comes to you and says these parts of yourself are not acceptable and these parts are, we get that from the body language of the group we're in. We notice who gets punished. We notice who gets shunned. We notice who's being talked about behind their back. We notice who's getting called to positions of power. We notice who is being passed over. And whether consciously or unconsciously, and I think most of it happens in an unconscious way, we start denying those parts of ourselves that don't fit. No one ever came to me and said, look, women are not supposed to be ambitious. Women are supposed to love children. Women are supposed to want to get married, love to keep the house, like sing like Cinderella while she sweeps the house and like invites like birdland, like woodland animals into her home while she's doing this. No one ever sat me down and said, Terry, this is who you're supposed to be. But I watched General Conference and I noticed the women who were on there looked a certain way. They spoke a certain way. I started taking on that kind of voice. That is not my normal voice. I noticed how they dressed. I noticed, you know, what their aspirations were. And there were also little subtle digs like, as a young woman, I came to my bishop and said, hey, in the ward I just came from, we got to hike because we had this amazing young women's leader that was like a forest ranger. And so she taught us how to do all these cool things. But I said, hey, this would be so cool if we could hike and we could do all of these things. And they said, nice young ladies don't like to do those things. I don't think that would go over very well. I'm a nice young lady asking for these things. And I'm getting the message, nice young ladies don't do that. AKA, you shouldn't be asking for that. You shouldn't want to be in nature. You shouldn't want to dig latrines. You shouldn't want to sleep in the lean-to. Um, so I think there's like really subtle messages of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And in order to belong, because we need to belong as a species, we need acceptance, we need belonging, we need love to thrive. They've done research studies that have shown that without love like loneliness is just as deadly as smoking it cuts down our our lifespan as much as smoking does if not more and because it is life or death for us in order to belong and to connect with other humans we will we will spend our own individual identity we will we will suppress ourselves if we have to in order to belong because it does feel like life or death and kind of getting to your question what does that do for us long term well we dissociate over the long term we give up small pieces of ourselves but over time we dissociate we can no longer 
identify our emotions or sometimes even feel it all. I have clients that say that they feel numb and we can't feel, we can't identify our emotions. And without that connection to our bodies, we can't identify what we want, what we value, what we believe, what's okay with us, what's not okay with us, what our boundaries are. We lose, we become nebulous and therefore easy to manipulate and take advantage of and control. So. Okay. So I have, I have two things I want to follow up with. One is, um, just kind of in my own personal journey and then now in working with clients, were you surprised? I guess for whatever reason, I was so surprised that this started happening so young, this kind of like dissociation and shame that you're talking about in this box. Because when I was five, I didn't, even when I was 10, even when I was 20, I really didn't have language for there's something here that's pushing me in the box and there's something here that's in my body that's resisting it. I didn't have that language. So it just came out in teenage rebellion, but it was so surprising to me that it started so young for myself. And then as I go into working with clients now in something similar to, to what you're doing, um, it, I have so many clients that I'm thinking of as you, as you say that, where that process of, like shh, like shoving part of yourself down, like shh, be quiet, started so young that they don't know what their inner voice even sounds like anymore. Mm -hmm. And so we have to go back to like five-year-old you. What were you like when you were three? What were you like when you were five? You know, because that inner voice and that inner conscience and that inner, um, all, all that stuff was quieted so young, they don't even know what their inner self sounds like. They don't, they really don't even know who they are. And so I, I guess it was so surprising to me that it starts so young um, before we really have words for it, right? We're just internalizing it. And I guess that's something that surprised me and myself. And it's surprising me as I'm working with clients, like, oh, we got to go you know, I know you're saying that this all blew up when you were 25, but we got to go back to when you were eight, when you were six, you know, and that, I guess, surprised me. Did that surprise you as you were uncovering that to see how far back that like that shame defragmentation happens? Yeah, I think personally, as I was going back and peeling back the layers for myself, realizing that some of the messages that I received not necessarily from church at that time, because again, I was in a ward with a bunch of converts who were all just trying to figure it out. So it felt much more open as a child. The indoctrination wasn't quite as heavy, but I also came from a family where it was a high demand family. So yes, some of that was very ingrained into the family system. And I can remember certain emotions, for instance, I remember the first instance, well, the first one that I remember, it was probably three or four of feeling angry and then realizing it was unsafe to feel angry. The only certain people in my family were allowed to feel angry and the rest of us were supposed to tiptoe, tiptoe around and keep them from feeling angry. And my job, my role was to suppress any anger I felt. So I would turn it into sadness so I wasn't allowed to feel anger, so I would cry and I would feel sad. And any anger I did feel, I would turn it inside because it couldn't be that person's fault because that person took care of me. So it must be my fault. I must be the problem. 
Yeah. And that happens just so young. My second question is, so like right now you have all this um, psychological and, and beautiful and educated language as you're looking back to apply to this process. But when you're talking about when you're, you're diagnosed with depression and you're starting to go to church and notice things and you're starting to, before you have language for what's happening, how did that show up for you? Just kind of like in your body and in your life before you had language to say, this is what's happening to me. What did that look like for you? So I honestly thought I was possessed by the devil. Like no joke. I really did think I was possessed by the devil. Um, because I just felt enraged all the time. And I had been taught that anger, you know, contention is of the devil, that anger comes from Satan. And so I was feeling the sort of growing sense of anger throughout my teenage years into my 20 year old years. And as I approached 30, there was just this like inferno inside of me. I would snap at the smallest things, everything made me angry. And I had tried everything, all the trite answers that they tell us to read our scriptures, to go to the temple more, to, you know, worship more, to pray more. Um, I got priesthood blessings and I ended up going to the bishop and telling him, like, I'm just angry all the time. I'm enraged all the time because most most people can name three emotions. We have language for three emotions, mad, sad and happy or mad, sad, glad, as my husband calls it. And but we wait until they get really big. It's like we don't notice those first stirrings of it. It's when it's exploding out of us. When we're, you know, laughing, we notice that we're happy. When we are crying, we notice we're sad. And when we're yelling at someone or we're shaking with rage, we re we recognize that we're angry. And so I knew I was angry and I went to the bishop and I said, I, I don't know what is wrong. I can't seem to control my anger. I am angry all the time. And he looked so confused and basically prescribed for me to read my scriptures more, go to the temple more, pray more, all of those things. And I left even angrier than I went into the interview because I just remember feeling so at the time I, I wouldn't have called it abandonment, but I felt so abandoned. And I just remember that's actually when I started spiraling into the clinical depression because I felt hopeless. And it felt like there was no help for me. Um, I was in England at the time, so there was no LDS family services. So I didn't feel like there were church approved therapists I could go to for help with this. I had gone to my bishop. My bishop didn't give me any answers that were different. So I went from this enraged state where I was angry all the time to slowly just despondent and numb. And and I didn't know what was going on. It was really confusing. My husband would ask what he, what was I feeling? I didn't know. What could he do to help? I didn't know. And, you know, in between deployments, because he was in the military, it, it was really difficult on our marriage. And it was really difficult on my self-worth. I used shame trying to control myself, like trying to pep talk myself, I guess, but using shame to try to like whip myself into shape. And it just made it worse and worse until I hit rock bottom where I woke up one day and I was like, we don't have food in the refrigerator and I have zero willpower to get myself to the grocery store. And it was finally at that point that I was like, I need help and called a friend um, who went grocery shopping with me and, you know, 
called my mother-in-law who flew, who flew across the ocean to like sit with me so that I could actually go get help. But it wasn't until I got to that point, I think if I had maintained some sort of ability to care for my day-to-day life, I might not have ever gone to see a therapist. I just would have assumed that for some reason I was broken and Satan had more of a grasp on me than, than I would like. Yeah. It's such a strange thing. I mean, again, lots of things are coming up. You guys are really good at kind of getting to the heart of it, but I was hitting it out of the park. I mean, I, I joined the church at 17. I'm the Bishop of that ward by 29. Everything's successful in terms of how I'm doing Mormonism. And yet there's this emptiness all along the way where I can sense that I want to show up in the world differently. And then there's a strange thing where once I start to do that, I realize that my ethics, my morality is actually better than the system telling me how to do life. And so as I start to be nuanced, right, as I start to be nuanced and I'm not exactly following the rules in how I approach helping other people in their hard times. And I just try to do the right thing. I'm noticing the results are better. And I'm noticing that I feel better. And yet the system just keeps pushing against you because you either are going to bend or we're going to get rid of you uh, one way or another. And I'm just curious. It seems as though some people and we, to some extent, we never saw the unhealthiness in the middle of it. Like you couldn't really name it. And yet here you are on this side and it's so obvious. You look back and you're like, wow, that thing hurt me in a thousand ways and I didn't even comprehend it. I'm just curious your thoughts on why some people seem to wake up to it and start to realize that this thing that told them it was the truth, the only truth really, and it's so unhealthy and so toxic and and yet, and yet, when you're in it, you you just don't even see it. Any thoughts on like why some people wake up to it and some don't? Anything there that resonates? So I am not entirely sure because I've heard so many different stories from so many different people where they've woken up because of different reasons. Some of them like never would have occurred to me yeah. why they woke up or what happened. Amen. But every journey has been different that I've heard so far. They have common threads, but they're also individual. Um, I think the only common thread I see in there is that at some point they listen and notice Mm. the cognitive dissonance. At some point they either get quiet enough and that's happened a lot over the past two years with the pandemic. A lot of my clients now just said, in the quiet when I was by myself and I wasn't around the consistent indoctrination, I finally heard myself scream is what one of my clients said. It was like there was someone inside of me screaming saying, stop it already. And they said, I had never heard the scream. I was always so busy and so involved. I never heard the scream. And so I think at some point, either we get quiet or we have an experience that allows us to hear our inner voice sometimes for the first time. And it might not even be a voice. It might be a feeling. It might be a sense of discomfort, um, just that uneasy feeling of something's wrong here. It just doesn't quite make sense. And if we take the time to get curious with it, then 
it can lead us on a journey. But we are taught thought stopping and emotion stopping techniques as well. And so some of us resort back to that. But I think many of us get to a place where we can't thought stop anymore and we can't emotion stop anymore. And we're taught those at such a young age, Britt, you were talking about it happening when you're a child. There are so many mechanisms in these systems that are designed to reroute you every time you have a thought that isn't welcomed. Mm-hmm. It, it is insane. Well, what's coming up for me right now is the primary song. If you chance to meet a frown, do not let it stay. Quickly turn it upside down oh my and gosh. smile that frown away. I haven't no even one, thought of that. Yeah, no one likes oh a frown Change it for a smile. Make the world a better place by smiling all the while. I have not thought of that primary song. Oh my gosh. I skipped primary and that triggered me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even put that together. Mm. Yeah. I only put that together a couple of years ago. In fact, it was right before we left. I was um, subbing for a primary class and they were singing that song. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. I have a tendency to get caught in the, like the tune and not pay attention to the lyrics. I sing the lyrics sort of like on autopilot and I just sat with the lyrics and I was like, this is such a toxically positive song of Mm. you're not likable. If you have a frowny face, if you're feeling sadness or grief, if you're angry, Mm -hmm. you're not likable. No one likes a frowny face. Mm. And if Gosh. you if you have a frowny face, like change it for a smile. Just stop feeling that way and oh. away. pretend. Yes. Keep mm-hmm. pretending. We need well, to goes, pretend. Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying about fitting in and belonging. And you're right, everyone's stories are different, but there is kind of a breaking point. And for you, it was really with your body. Like your body was keeping score, right? And then your mm-hmm. body was just like, I'm done. Um, but there is a breaking point where it's so painful to have to put on my smile, right? In order to belong here, that I'm willing to go out into the wilderness and face loneliness in order to deal with this, you know, mm-hmm. because because Bill's right, like we, or whoever said it, maybe it was you, Terry, that, you know, this need for belonging and the feeling of loneliness, like it it is pain, you know, psychological pain that is, that we, we biologically avoid. And so something has to be dissonant enough in trying to belong that we're willing to walk out, out of the cave, out of the tribe of belonging out into the unknown and just say, I'm willing to face whatever's out here. Cause I, I just, I don't feel like I belong here. Yeah. Can't do this anymore. So I have a question, yeah. Terry. So as you're like, so you're, learning things with your husband and you're learning all these, you're giving words to your own emotions. You're giving words to um, psychological states. You're giving words to, you know, the bite model and things like this. And then you're still going to church and you're wrestling with these two. As you start to feel yourself kind of like give permission to go on this journey and maybe take a step away from the things that are harming you. How did I notice at that point for myself and for a lot of my clients somewhere like a fear will show up like a deep, like you're letting go of the iron rod kind of thing. So did you, was that freeing for you? Did you have fear show up at that part of the process or how did that look for you as you're starting to kind of take steps out into the unknown really? I don't think we go through any sort of growth or any sort of change without fear. I think fear is always going to accompany us. 
um, because biologically we're hardwired to avoid uncertainty and to avoid the unknown. It's, you know, hardwired in there from our earliest ancestors trying to avoid, you know, poisonous berries or saber-toothed tigers or all of those sorts of things. And our body doesn't distinguish between the threat of learning something new and being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. It all feels life-threatening. And as, so it was a very gradual journey. At first, I considered myself solely as the problem. I did not consider the church as the problem at all. I considered my depression and the shame I was experiencing, my interpretation of events that had happened in my family and in the church. I didn't blame my family. I didn't blame the church. I didn't see them as part of the journey at all. Um, and actually, I think that was actually a, a great part of my journey to, to turn inward and to see what my part was first and to kind of start to belong to myself and to accept myself first. Um, I think all journeys of healing start with ourselves first, because if I can learn to accept and belong to myself, then I can have tough conversations with people who may not see the world the way that I see it. And I can stand alone in groups that may disagree with me. And so I think if I hadn't healed that part of me first, I wouldn't have then had the courage to then start questioning church teachings and church doctrine. So I had to start with me first. And that was just my way of doing it. Other people do it differently. But then, yeah, as I started to question systems, that included, you know, my whole supportive community, my family. Um, it felt scary. Once I was out of the Mormon church and I started to question Christianity as a whole, that was scary too, because my whole extended family, I mean, when I left Mormonism, my family was like, yeah, my extended family, they were so excited because they thought that now I would land where they are. And then when I continued to deconstruct and landed outside of that in more of a place of agnosticism where I'm just curious and want to learn and grow and I don't ever really land in certainty, um, that felt really threatening to them. And so, yeah, there's been fear every step of the way. There's been fear joining Bill and becoming even more public and having even more access to to listeners. Like there was fear with that. I think anytime we step out of our comfort zone, anytime we make ourselves a little bit more vulnerable, there's fear involved with it for sure. Mm. I want to I want to talk about shame for a moment cuz I think that connects. I think part of our fear in these high demand systems is that the system will figure out a way to shame us or embarrass us or label us as less than in some way. And I'm always wrestling in my head with is is all shame bad? And I, I want to kind of ask you that is is all shame because I think if I sit and play with that idea for a while I think there is some good shame, but maybe we have to define what shame is or talk about it. Cause I, I and I'll put my two cents in. I, I think that the, the rule for humanity is that we can't cause anyone unnecessary harm. And if I feel embarrassed because I hurt somebody else unnecessarily, there's some learning in that process of feeling that. To me, this unhealthy shame is when we're hurting. We're not hurting someone unnecessarily. We just are making people uncomfortable because it's not the 
expression of humanity they want us showing up with. And and I just want to get your thoughts on good shame, bad shame, and how useful shame is as a tool to coerce us into being good little loyal followers. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought this up. So it's a, I feel like it's sort of a linguistics issue right here with the good shame and bad shame. Um, there are researchers that do use that, that use good shame and bad shame to talk about two different experiences that we do feel physiologically in our body very similarly, um, but have very different thought processes behind them. And I really enjoy Brene Brown's work on this because she separates out guilt and shame, which we feel in our bodies very physiologically the same. So Ronald Fredrickson has actually mapped like the physiological um, responses that we have in our body to different emotions and all of us feel them differently. Um, and that's a fantastic exercise. If you're listening to this and don't know what you're feeling, if you're still in that place of, you know, I, I don't know what this feeling is. There are exercises in his book, Living Like You Mean It, that um, allow you to really think about the different emotions and how they show up physiologically in your own body. Um, and guilt and shame, they show up very, very similarly, but they have very different thought processes behind them. And so Brene Brown, in the simplest terms, talks about shame as I am bad, I am bad versus guilt, which is I did something bad. And so it's parsing out the behavior from our worth as an individual. Shame says we're unworthy of love and belonging. Guilt says I'm a good person who did something bad. And I like to think about guilt as when we are going against our own personal values. So if my personal value is I don't cause I don't cause harm to un, like I don't cause intentional harm to other humans and then we do something that intentionally harms someone or even unintentionally harms somebody and we've caused them pain then that might go against my own personal values and I'm living out of alignment at that point. And that's gonna show up as guilt. That feeling is that my behavior is out of alignment with what I value and what I think I want my life to look like. And to Bill's, yeah, and to Bill's point, like we wanna keep that. Like that's yes. a, that, is a, that is a feedback loop that we want to, because yes. it's gonna guide our behavior. It guide yeah, absolutely. We want to keep that because that's what keeps us accountable. It's what keeps us learning. It's what allows us to grow. Um, it's what allows us to make amends and to restore trust in relationships. So, you know, guilt is what is needed with huge issues like racism and um, misogyny and authoritarianism. Like there needs to be some some guilt there so that we can cue into, you know, I'm not living in alignment with what I feel like is right with my with my values. Shame, on the other hand, when it leads us to feel unworthy, it actually does the opposite of what guilt does. When I feel ashamed, when I feel, all right, do you need me to pause for a minute? Um, I, yeah, it looks like she's having a little bit of a glitch, but, but continue your answer. You're good. Okay. She'll join us back in a second. Okay. So when we're feeling shame, however, um, and we feel like we're unworthy and we're a bad person because that feels so threatening to ourselves as, as people, that's when you see people putting up their defenses, putting up their shield. They're not thinking about the feedback that you're giving because they're in a shame response. And 
really the thought that's going on in their head is I'm a bad person. I'm a bad person. I'm a bad person. And they're doing everything to disprove that because that feels so terrible to our system. So when shame is, you know, when shame is a big problem and many of us in high demand religions, like shame was the culture that we were raised in that if you don't fit this way, if you don't do things this way, you are a bad person. It leads us to be really judgmental of others. It leads us to be very um, self-righteous, narcissistic sometimes. Um, It leads us to be codependent. It can lead us to be very defensive and not open to hearing about our mistakes because our mistakes mean that we are bad. Yeah. I'm just, I'm thinking about like when I, my wife and I, we were laying in bed listening to the consent and coercion and uh, I was in tears for part of it because what had happened is, you know, you know me at least well enough from the outside to know that I've dealt at least on some seriousness with all these issues, Um, historical issues, social issues, my own kind of inner stuff going on. And uh, you don't realize, you don't realize how often Uh, how often your consent is being violated and how often you're being coerced into conforming. And I I couldn't, I couldn't have, when you went into that episode, 80% of the examples you use, I'm like, oh my goodness, I've never even thought of that one. Oh my goodness, I never even thought of that one. And you realize it's over and over and over again. And it's just taught to you that this is the way the world works. This is what we do. This is what good people do. This is how we support the Lord. This is how we support his leaders. This is how we, you know, raise their voices and depreciate our own. Um, maybe talk for a moment about how these systems use shame and coercion. It, it, it seems like the only choice they have, because that's how the system works. But any thoughts there on, does anything come up for you on that? idea of like shame and it as a tool to get us to do things. Absolutely. Shame is a great motivator to get people to conform, at least in the short term, because shame feels awful and it feels like a threat to our existence and our threat to our lovability. And remember, connection is a part of what we need to survive. On Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it is down there towards the bottom. We need love and belonging. And so by threatening us, with our lovability and our worthiness to belong in the group, it is a great motivator to get us to do whatever the authority wants us to do. Um, And that often leads to some sort of benefit for the authority. So in high demand religion, that could be anything from giving your money, giving your time, giving your talents, giving, you know, everything that you have to an organization to benefit and aggrandize that organization. It could also look like, you know, in some of the, in some of the things that we would consider religious cults, it might look like suppressing, you know, giving sex to leaders or access to children to leaders. Um, It often looks like giving power to leaders. So power, sex, and money are the three main motivators for authoritarian systems. 
And we see this not just in religious high demand organizations and cults, but we see this in self-improvement organizations and cults like Nexium. We see it in um, political groups sometimes. We see it in high demand families that have narcissistic authoritarian parents or grandparents leading the family. Um, and it's money, power, and sex that are usually the driving forces behind these authoritarian systems. And if I can use shame against you, if I can make you feel like you're not worthy of power, worthy of a voice, worthy of an identity, worthy of boundaries, then you're easier to manipulate and I get more of what I want as the person in power. And I think sometimes when we have high demand systems that have been around for a long time, I don't know that it's always conscious anymore for leadership. I think because they've been raised in those systems, and I think this is true for high demand families as well. When you've been raised in a system like that, it's just the way things are, just like you said, Bill. And then generational trauma comes into play where we repeat what we learned as children without even really being conscious of it. And we think we're right because it was what was modeled for us and it's our only frame of reference. I think that was so that was so beautiful of you to really um, differentiate those two because you're not trying to say that every bishop out there is like a sociopath thinking like, what can I say to manipulate you and shame you into doing what I want you to do? It's not that conscious. But when you look back at someone like Brigham Young, like when you say sex, money, power, like there were some obvious plays for that, like obvious conscious decisions for those, all three of those things, right? Like I am going to, based on how you deal with me, you get water rights and you don't, right? That's an obvious power play, right? But then you go through the generations and most people that I know who, you know, I've experienced shame from or, you know, have used this tactic or whatever, I, it's not the same way. It's not, it's not that conscious um, kind of sociopath kind of way. It's, I, I feel like it's more fear driven. Like this is what's safe. This is what I was taught was safe. And so I'm going to help you stay in what's safe. And it can even be from a place of genuine love, but love with a lot of fear, love with a lot of fear of the unknown. Right. Um, so I'm really glad that you differentiated those two. That was really, that was really healthy. Thank you. Yeah. I find that, I mean, as I've learned to accept myself and accept the self that I was in Mormonism as well, because I find that that is often an issue. Sometimes after we've deconstructed, we look back on our past selves with a lot of judgment and a lot of shame, recognizing that we were doing the best that we could with the understanding that we had. And that, you know, in general, when I was in callings of power, my heart was not in the place of wanting to oppress people or to pass on the harm that was given to me. I wasn't aware of the harm that had been passed to me. And I wasn't aware that I was then passing on that harm. I was just taking what I had been taught as truth and passing it on as what had been, you know, as what was truth in part, because that gave me belonging and acceptance and made me a good girl within the system. But also, I thought I was safeguarding the next generation or, you know, the women that were my own age. Um, I wasn't trying to be manipulative. And yet I was sometimes without realizing it. 
Yeah, I sit and I think about those two words, by the way, belonging and fitting in. And we compromise so much of ourselves for society as well, not just high demand religions, but for society as well. And and it just struck me one day when I, I thought to myself, like, I've learned things that the rest of the group doesn't know. And surely they want to know these things. Surely they want to make more informed decisions. And as I began to kind of raise my hand and say, hey, do you know this or do you know that? There was all this pushback. And I quickly realized that, oh, like these people only like me if I fit this box. And the moment I stop fitting this mold, not only do church members start pushing me away, but certain members of my family and my in-laws, not mine because I'm a convert, but my in-laws start pushing me away. And I can sense that like, oh, it doesn't really matter whether I scream and yell at my kids and whether I'm really not the greatest of human beings. What matters is that I, I signal to them that I'm living the story the way they're living the story. And I, I guess I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking about like fitting in, again, compromising big parts of yourself, even if you're successful, like it, at least for some of us, it just doesn't feel good. Like people don't really like me because of who I am. People like me because of who I pretend to be. And I, I don't, I don't know if there's a question there. I just noticing like how much pain is in that, like pretending to be something you're not and you think it fills you. And I just learned at some point, it really wasn't filling me. It didn't really, didn't really make me happy to pretend to be something and to be liked for somebody I wasn't. Um, I don't know any, I guess I'm just throwing something out and just seeing if any thoughts kind of come up. No, I'm glad you brought this up because I think many of us believe that we will know if we're in systems of fitting in or systems of belonging right from the beginning. And we don't, Mm -hmm. I think we often get into systems of fitting in when sometimes there's something missing in our life, or we haven't quite come to accept ourselves the way we are. For me, when I got to BYU, I threw myself into the indoctrination, like wholeheartedly opened my arms and embraced it um, because I came from a high demand family system in which fitting in was kind of the status quo, not just in my, you know, family of origin, but like in my whole extended family, there were expectations about who you needed to be and what you needed to say and what was okay to say and what was not okay to say in order to cover up abuse that was happening and alcoholism that was happening and and things like that that were happening. Um, It's what led my mother to the Mormon church. She was missing some of those things. And so it felt like family and it felt like belonging. And because it felt like what she was missing, she was willing to give up pieces of herself and didn't realize she was in order to accept this feeling of family and this feeling of I have a place to belong and I'm acceptable and I'm lovable. And I did the same thing and it felt good until it didn't feel good. And I I don't know how else to put that. I, you know, I was involved in an MLM at one point even, and it felt amazing. I was part of this amazing group of ladies and they all loved me and it was so great until I started disagreeing. And until I started being like, wait, this is, this is mind control. I was still in it. And I was like, I'm learning all about this. This is mind control. And this is mind control. And this is not okay. And this is authoritarianism. And they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. We're cutting you from the groups. Like you can't be in these groups if you're saying these things. And I was like, and it's another place of fitting in, not belonging. How did I not see that? 
Yeah. That's so that's so interesting. And I think as you're learning, you know, as we're adults learning kind of the differences between fitting and belonging, I feel like once I went through that journey, like you're talking about of belonging to myself and then truly being naked and really uh, being seen and loved wholly by someone else, you know, new friends that you make along the way. I feel like I'm coming back now and noticing relationships where if you would have asked me five years ago, does this person like, are you really belong with this person? I would say, yeah, like we, we go, you know, they come over and we have a fire and it's lovely. And of course they love me, of course. And then now that I really know what you know, there's a couple people where like, I've been completely vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. And really been seen and loved in that space, which is, it's really scary, but it's really beautiful when you find people that can, you can do that with. And now I'm noticing as I go back to some of my friends and family relationships, I'm more aware of like, oh, you're only, only 10% of me is really showing up here. You know, mm -hmm. only 25% of me is really allowed to meet you here. And I become just like so much more aware of it as I'm, as an adult, learning the difference between fitting in and, and true belonging. But it's something, it's something you have to learn as you belong to yourself and just kind of throw yourself out in the world. And you just say, this is me. And you have no idea how people are going to show up to that or not. And that's really scary. But um that's where you kind of learn. For me, I learned that difference. So I have a question. Um, did you, I kind of know for me and I know for Bill, there was a moment for Bill, I, I think if I'm remembering this right, where, you know, you kind of wake up on a Sunday, you don't want to go to church. Your family doesn't want to go to church. And you just say, I'm not going to go to church today. You were having like anxiety, da, 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 and you made the decision. And for me, I had this moment where, um, I don't think I've ever shared this on the podcast, but I was doing a walking meditation and I just had a lot of like just resistance in my body. This was years and years ago. And um, there was this moment where I was really digging in, like, why am I holding back from, from growing here? What is holding me back? And it was this deep voice, this male voice that I was like holding in my body and my belly. And I'm not like a body work person. That's really not like my focus. That's not my expertise. I'm a really headspace person but there was something that had to like leave my body. And it was this thought of, if you take another step, you're going to eternally lose your family. It was like this deep internalized male voice of shame that my body had a memory of that was stopping me from making another step. And it really had to process out of my body. And I don't understand. There's a lot of people who understand that body work a lot better than I do. But it really had to pro something in my body had to process in order for me to not show up at church on Sunday. So when you finally you're you know you're changing, it's a gradual process. You're learning, you're processing, you're working with the therapist. Did you have a moment where you said, "Okay, like I'm letting go here," or what was that first Sunday like where you just said, "I'm not going anymore"? Do you remember that decision? Okay, so. Um... I'm a very orderly person and the whole process of us leaving was, I was in the stake relief society presidency at the time. Um, and I like, I started to tell, I was very honest with the stake president when he called me and just said, Hey, I have like some questions. There's some things here that I'm not completely okay with. And they called me anyway. 
And when it got to the point where they were wanting me to lie, basically, to the people that I was supposed to train to do their jobs. And I was going to have to um, build up their testimony in a way that did not feel authentic to me was probably the moment where I realized, like, I really can't continue in the church the way that I've always been in the church. Um, Up until this point, I had been sort of like doing some mental gymnastics in order to like just teach what I felt in alignment with and avoid what I didn't feel in alignment with. And like that had worked for me for a little while. Um, But I was at a place where I was directly being asked to teach things that went and there was no way around it really to teach things that went against my understanding of myself and of what was healthy emotionally um, and what was true and like factually historically true. And I remember talking first, like making a plan. I sat down with paper and a pen and making a plan of how am I going to do this and how far am I willing to go? And I was like, I'm going to do one step. And then we're going to see how that goes. And then I'll take another step if, you know, I feel like I need to. And we'll see how that goes. So I sat down with the Stake Relief Society presidency and just said, hey, this is where I'm at. And that conversation went moderately well. But they were still asking me to perform my duties in a way that went against my personal values. And so then I asked, like, then I told them I needed to be released because I would not, could not betray myself that way. And the next step was my husband. Like I stayed because my husband was still trying to like process where he wanted to go. So like we had all of these steps and it wasn't just like one morning. I was like, we're not going. Like we actually went and had a conversation with the bishop where we were like, just so you know, we're leaving. This is why you know, if you have questions for us, we'd be happy to answer them. This is what we want. This is what we don't want. Here are our boundaries. And I mean, kudos to the ward. They've pretty much respected our boundaries. Um, But yeah, it, it was, it was a very logical decision. Um, And I think I, I did it little pieces at a time to just feel into, does this feel authentic and does this improve my life or does this feel like it makes my life worse? So it was kind of like a little tiny experiment process that I had kind of laid out beforehand of this is how far I'm willing to go first. And we'll try that on and see. And I think I did get to a point where I was like, look, there are no mistakes that are irreversible. I don't know enough to deny the Holy Ghost. That's the only irreversible sin that I've been taught about, and I'm not planning on murdering anyone. So I think we're pretty safe there. So any, like any compassionate, empathic God would have to understand that I am doing my best to make sense out of life. And I'm trying to do what's healthy for me and my family. And I'm taking small steps and I'm not doing this to be rebellious or I'm just doing this to be healthy. And I'm doing what I feel is right. And if a God can't understand that, then I got some serious questions for that God. And it's probably not somebody I want to hang with anyway. Right. How can I be bad for just doing what my brain tells me is the right thing to do? Yeah. Yeah. So I, at one point I had to get to that, that place of just understanding that logically it didn't make sense when we know that growth mindset is so healthy here for humans. 
it did not make sense to have a God that didn't believe in growth mindset and trying things on and seeing if they work or didn't work. Isn't that weird? Like the, the systems that are unhealthy almost expect you to stagnate and stay still. Like you, you're infantilized or maybe left as like a 14 year old essentially. And then you're supposed to be that 14 year old forever. And any development, any growth, any shedding of old ideas and taking on new is all seen as bad when all you're doing is taking in new information and making better choices with it. It's even more interesting when you look at, you know, we'll do a lesson on, you know, Adam and Eve and, and, you know, God wanted us to explore, you know, all these opposing emotions and all of these different experiences and agency and go, don't be a little child, like go out into the world and experience stuff. And then how we parent as Mormons is like, no, 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 no. you stay here in the garden, you stay naive, you stay a child, we don't give you your agency or else you'll mess up, you know, and it's, it's so funny when we give those lessons. And I'm like, is anyone hearing this? Like, we not we're not even doing you know what the god of that story would do which is so funny to me yeah yeah well and i think it's interesting that you said you know we ask people to stay 14 forever almost when i left that's i felt like a 12 year old child stuck in a 37 year old body and as i was making new friends out in the community i remembered saying hey i came from a high demand religion and as far as things go like I'm kind of like a middle schooler stuck in an adult body. I'm learning how to make friends like authentically. I don't know whether I like alcohol. I don't know whether like I, I don't know so many things about myself. I feel like I'm going through that transition between child and teenager and adult right now, trying to figure out who I am, what I like, what I value, what I want, how I want to dress. So there might be some craziness over here. Just like be patient with me while I figure this mess out because I'm going through my teenage years at the age of 37 right now, apparently. I think I think something that I see every day, I'll, I'll pop in. I kind of like to peruse Mormon groups just to kind of like see what's going on in that world. And every day in some kind of post-Mormon group, there's a bunch of different ones. There'll be inevitably someone who says, I'm walking into Starbucks. Please tell me what to say. How do I order? And it's this like cute the little community of like, let's help you just like learn how to order a coffee. You know, like let, let's help you do this little adult thing that adults do every day, you know, and we're just, you know, these little children walking to a Starbucks, like, help me. I don't know what I want, Absolutely. <laughs> but it, but we're all doing this together. And that is something that I really love about post-Mormon communities is that we're all kind of reclaiming all of that together and trying to figure that out. So I do love that camaraderie of help me walk into a Starbucks. I think that's really, that's just a really beautiful human, you know, thing that we're all kind of experiencing together in that community. Absolutely. Either that one or what underwear are comfortable? Like, where do I go to buy underwear now? That's a huge question I see all the time too, where people are asking, what do I even wear? I don't know because that's been controlled for us for so many, so many years. Yeah. People don't get it, right? Like it, it told you what underwear to wear and it told you how loud you could laugh. Mm-hmm. And those two things together just tell me like, I, I probably was in the wrong place, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Anyway, um, I want to jump back into the podcast for just a moment, and I want to ask you what your favorite episode was to put together for Emancipate Your Mind. Like, which which is the episode you're either most proud of, or you like the most, or like like tell us a little bit about your own perception of the work that you've done. So I have a couple of episodes that I really love, usually because they have something to do with my own story that I was trying to like figure out. Um, one of my very first episodes was on reclaiming identity. And that was one of my favorites simply because in that moment, um, I felt like I had gotten a pretty good handle on how I had reclaimed my own and I could start teaching people. That's It's what my courses are on, is on those first steps of reclaiming your identity and becoming embodied again and getting comfortable in your body again and feeling emotions again and using those emotions to help inform your values and help inform your beliefs now and help inform what you want and don't want in life and where your boundaries are. Um, So I really like that episode. The next episode I really enjoyed were there's actually two episodes on perfectionism and people pleasing. Because especially for, well, for men and women, but I find that a lot of women really resonated with those. Um, the people pleasing in particular, uh, lots of lots of comments after that one. That one was really fun to put together and to explore. So I think it says to all my fellow people pleasers is the name of that, that episode. And then um, there's one on perfectionism. And I did that one last year, kind of in the middle of the year. Um, And I learned so much about perfectionism that I hadn't thought about before. I understood perfectionism as a um, sort of a coping mechanism with shame. And it's exactly that, but it's also a numbing mechanism. So it's it's a way for us to numb um, that sense of shame. And it's a way for us to feel like we have control and power when maybe we feel powerless. So really enjoyed those two. Um, and then just recently, I did a podcast on um, codependency. Uh, I was not born into, so I wasn't born into the church. I My mom converted when I was six months old. But um, yeah, so my mom converted when I was six months old. But for all intents and purposes, I was raised in the church because she was investigating for like three months before that. So, oh, hey. So, um yeah, but there was a recent one on codependency that I really loved. Um, and I learned a lot about myself and about my family. And I'm still studying narcissistic relationships and codependency right now. It's kind of where my area of focus is is at. And everything I'm learning, I'm just loving and um, really enjoying putting together packets of information for podcasts and being able to like talk about one topic because it's such a, you know, we talk about enmeshment. It's such an enmeshed um enmeshed topic even like it all just kind of is gnarled up it's like a big piece of string that's you know just gnarled up so it's fun to like pull it apart and have little episodes i really loved i also really loved your perfectionist episode because i think i it it, this was like a recent discovery of myself maybe a year or two ago that you know you think of perfectionism as like you know i'm not going to do it unless it's perfect and I, for the most part had, you know, that is not something that plagues me in my daily life, but then it went into like perfectionist fantasies, which is a little bit different and how that's like an anxiety, you know? So I I do this thing sometimes where like my week is just a train wreck. And then I'll think on Monday, I'm going to meditate 
every day and I'm going to da 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 and I make this big list of all the things that I'm going to be on Monday. And I never associated that with like, that is a perfectionist fantasy that's giving me a sense of control because my week was a dumpster fire. Right. And I guess I never like had put those two together as like, it really is like a little blankie of perfectionism. I've, I'm giving myself by imagining this somehow magical person who's going to like meditate for an hour every morning and evening on Monday and stepping into that is like some, some perfectionism showing up. And so diving into that, you know, sometimes I think I really like, I got, I've read the Brene Brown books. I've done all these things and then I'm still uncovering old patterns, you know, and I haven't, you know, been at church in a long time, but you know, I'm still uncovering, just patterns of, you know, when you're raised in the church, this is how your brain is formed. And so clients that have left the church for 30 years that I'm working with, you know, you'll still have this, the echo, you'll still have that pattern there. And you really have to dig in and just kind of regrow up as you're talking about. And so that I really loved that episode too. Yeah. And for people who are wanting more on perfectionism, I have found Nick Wignall's work incredibly useful um, the way he describes perfectionism and how it shows up in our lives has really helped me to like pinpoint more of it um, than when I first began because I thought perfectionism looked one way and actually it's a whole spectrum of behaviors that we do to comfort ourselves and help ourselves feel like we're in control when like you said things get out of control and they're hairy and they don't go the way we want them to um, yeah yeah so let me ask you what, um, so on this podcast, we really just like to talk about what spiritual spirituality looks like when you take that step out. Um, and so a lot of, I'm assuming a lot of your spiritual work is really this deep inner child work, this deep, all the stuff that you've been talking about. This is very spiritual work because it's really deeply connecting to the deepest parts of yourself. But, um, how would you describe if someone were to ask you, like, what does your spiritual life look like? How would you answer that now? So for me, spirituality is no longer religious at all. It has to do with how I connect to myself, how I connect to others and how I connect to the earth. And I'm incredibly agnostic. I like to keep myself in a place of uncertainty. If I find myself being like, this is the way it is, I actually check myself and I say, this is how I understand it to be right now, but I'm open to further learning um, because just the way our brains work, once we say this is the way it is, our brains quit looking for any sort of evidence that con like contradicts that or expands that. Um, so the agnosticism and just the connection, I do that through just learning about myself um, or learning about human human behavior. So I would say psychology has taken a huge, it's a huge role in my spirituality, just understanding how humans work and what we understand about that right now is a big deal. I spend a ton of time in nature, um, being quiet and just kind of feeling connected. Um, I spend a ton of time journaling and allowing whatever's inside of me to spill onto paper where I can look at it with my conscious mind. Um, and I'm trying to think if there's anything else. So. I've allowed myself to explore all kinds of different paths to spirituality, but I haven't really found anything that feels like home except for the learning process. 
So learning feels like home, but nothing else has really felt like home. I've allowed myself to dig into some Taoism and into some Buddhism, and I've allowed myself to dig into um, some Wiccan practices and some paganism. And um, I'm trying to think if there are other things. I even like we have a Quran on our um, on our shelf that I've kind of read through and you know have looked for pearls of wisdom. But right now it's more just looking for common truths and common like common things throughout all of the different religions and kind of all of the different spirituality practices, including some of the new age practices and some of the, um, the things that we're seeing in Western society that come from Eastern influences and just looking at, you know, what feels, what makes me feel more connected to myself, more connected to others and more connected to the earth. And if it does that for me right now, then I incorporate that into my life. And if it doesn't, if it makes me disconnected from myself, from others or the earth, allowing myself to release those things. So I really don't belong anywhere spiritually except to myself. And that's exactly where I want to be. I love that you claim agnosticism and I think this is something that I'm I'm still I'm still learning to do because you kind of have this like proud agnosticism and I want to get there because I'm like a re I'm a reluctant agnostic <laughs> because I have this like degree in theology and so at the end of that to have to say like I don't know I know nothing somehow like my pride is still wrapped into that because most of the agnostics that I know just like have never really thought about these things or don't really care. And I like really, really cared for like a really, really long time. And so there's something that still holds me back from that. But I love how you just really claim that, that I'm, I'm really claiming spirituality in uncertainty. I'm claiming spirituality in mystery. Um, I just, you claim that really beautifully and I'm, I'm still, tr I'm still working on, um, modeling that and and internalizing that because there's sometimes that I just still want to have something to say about all that schooling that I went to and I just really don't. <laughs> yeah, well, and there's something inside of us that just really likes certainty too. So I notice it creep up inside of me as well where I'm like, no, this is the way, this is the answer. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is the best answer I've found so far. And we're going to go with that. So we like leave that open. But yeah, I'm, sometimes we just want answers. Sometimes we want to, we just want to know why things are the way they are. And I think that's just human nature and it makes sense. This is the best answer I've found so far. I like that. I always tell people, I know what it's not. I, I know it's not Mormonism. I know it's not the Jehovah's Witnesses. I know it's not Scientology. I know that every religion that tries to name it seems to miss the mark. Um, Whatever it is, maybe it's unnameable, mm. and maybe anybody who puts a label on it is has stepped further away from it, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm I don't actually, know what it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually taking a course with Joe Lumen, um, and she's talking about you know Christian supremacy and all of these different things um, from like a, a a worldwide point of view and a historical point of view. She's a theologian. Um, it, it's it's been incredible. One of the things I love, though, is she said the initial purpose for religion was to have a place to ask tough questions and simply philosophize about what could be the answers. 
And she was talking about how Judaism still, you know, utilizes some of those principles where you can be Jewish and not believe in God. You can be Jewish and you can, you know, say that God is a, a punk, that he's not a very good person. Like you can have these kinds of conversations and that that was like, that's the point of religion is like to have a place that is specifically set aside where you can just try to make sense of the human condition. Just try to make sense of why do we feel the way we do? Why do we do what we do? Why, you know, why do these things happen? And I don't think that there is a specific religion that does that or a specific spiritual place that is the best for that. It's it's more about like, where do you feel like you can get those kinds of conversations and you can really kind of like juice information and feel safe. Like, again, we're talking about belonging, feel safe to say, Hey, I don't believe this, or this is the way I see this. What about you? And it's okay for me to like, you know, say something different. In fact, it's making me think of a Brene Brown quote, um, where she just says your level of belonging can never be greater than your level of self-acceptance. So if we're able, if everybody is able to be their own individual self and we're all able to come and say, this is what I think. And this is what I believe. What do you think? And we're all able to just kind of converse that way. I think we get at the heart of what we're trying to do with spirituality practices, regardless of where those are found. Yeah. I really like how you just kind of check in with yourself as you're exploring and like, is this making me feel connected? Because I think sometimes when I ask clients the question of like, what does spiritually lo spirituality look like to you, especially women, they'll say something like, well, I tried to meditate, but I just like can't get a meditation practice going. So I'm not spiritual. And so like we dig in mm -hmm. and it's like conversations like this, deeply spiritual for me, right? This is church for me and for Bill too. And and so sometimes claiming spirituality is also just being connected enough to yourself to know lunch with the girls can can be claimed as this is my spiritual path. Like this is deeply spiritual for me and I am scheduling it in my day as church and claiming it as a spiritual need in my life. And because that's never been modeled for us, that that's what spirituality can look like. It can look like a walk. It can look like journaling just nonsense, just for pages and pages and pages. For me, when I got really honest with myself, instead of like trying to make my spirituality look like spiritual people, I admired spirituality, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I get really honest with myself. I need words. I need language. I need to read something every day. Like even if it's one sentence, this is my prayer or my contemplation or my lunch or whatever people do for spirituality, I need to read something because language is how I interact with the world. And, but it wasn't until I got really honest with myself and checked in with myself that I claimed those things as spirituality, even though nobody told me that making a dinner for my family and cleaning up afterwards can be a spiritual practice or reading a Brene Brown book can be a spiritual practice or all these little things that just a, a podcast, what do you do for spirituality? I run a podcast. That's not a normal answer, but when you begin to claim those, that's um, where you really start finding your spiritual path. And so it's checking in with yourself. And so that's just really beautiful how you phrase that. I love that you brought that up. I think one of the most spiritual experiences I ever had was at the Love Loud Festival um, in Utah. There with my kids, we had just recently left the church and 
I thought that I had lost the Holy Ghost for forever. I thought I had lost spirituality for forever. And we were there. We had these light up bracelets and the whole stadium like was just these pulsing waves of color that went with the music and people were singing. My kids were singing beside me. I felt connected to myself. I felt connected to everyone in that stadium. We were all creating this scene together and I felt connected to like just humanity now and like through the ages, like at a Love Loud festival. And I was not even an Imagine Dragons fan at the time. And I had this huge spiritual experience and it just was really cool. And that's kind of when I started realizing spirituality wasn't just something that happened in a church or just reading a certain set of scriptures or on my knees in prayer, spirituality, like you said, could be cooking dinner. It could be all of these different practices that we do. It could be found in places that I considered irreverent before because I considered concerts irreverent. And I could have a hugely spiritual experience in a place that I had been told was irreverent. Yeah. Good girls don't go to Imagine Dragons concerts. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true, though. And I I actually read one study that talked about how the the rave scene that kind of came on came on scene was kind of as as churches stopped doing these really high emotion kind of services where you're just like, you know, we almost look back and make fun of them now of, of people speaking in tongues. But, you know, just these really powerful kind of experiences that you do in church when we kind of started looking at those and saying, uh, I don't, I'm not really on board with all of that, that, uh, that desire to just sing and be with people like on a deep tribal level, but Mm -hmm. in something that you actually agree with, like love loud instead of whatever, whatever that, you know, you're singing in a Pentecostal church, um, you know, it'll come out in other ways. And so that's just really beautiful that, you know, we leave churches, we've we've left this kind of church where we all kind of sing together, but then I'll go to a soccer game and I'll sing or I'll go to a Weezer concert, yep. which is part of my spiritual life because they are the best. And, you know, you still can get that feeling that I'm a part of something that's bigger than me. And that's what spirituality is. It's being a part of something that's bigger than just you. Yeah. Mm. Love that. I uh, I wanted to kind of wrap up here. I wanted to give you a little bit of time. You know, the the new website that we have for you is emancipateyourmind.org. So folks, let me get rid of the little thing there. Uh, emancipateyourmind.org. And you can see, I mean, tons of episodes. I think you're on episode. The next one that'll come out will be 59. Mm-hmm. That is pretty cool. Um, been doing this for over a year. Uh, folks, I, I want to also give folks a chance to know that you do coaching as well and have you be able to point people towards that and talk about anything else that you're doing away from the site that you would want to bring any attention to. Yeah. So I actually created an app at the end of last year. There are a lot of people that were telling me they wanted help beginning to reclaim their identity, beginning to feel again, get embodied again, figure out what they believe, what they, um, you know, what, what they want now, where are their boundaries? What, what do they want to do with their lives? And so I have two courses that are on the app. I'm releasing a third one here in the next couple of weeks. Um, and they're, they're self-guided courses. There's videos with all of them. And then there is a group coaching call that goes with that every single week. So there's, we have a group of about five to 10 people that regularly show up for those. Um, and so, yeah, 
that that's fantastic. I would say we have more like five-ish people that show up for the calls, but um, like 10 people in total that are really like utilizing all of the group services right now. We have several more people that have signed up and are just kind of leading themselves through, but um, have created that for people who are looking to just kind of understand themselves better as they're moving into where do I go from here after I've deconstructed. I do one-to-one -one coaching, but I am pretty full right now, to be honest. So I have maybe one or two more spaces right now before I'm at max capacity, which is also part of the reason I created the app. So we have the app, we have the podcast, and I um, do one-to-one -one coaching, and that's kind of where we're at. I can't hear you. Oh, Bill. So sorry. Um, I would just encourage folks again, this, your podcast, again, I've listened to maybe five, six, seven episodes at this point, And I just adore what you're doing. And I, I think that you are offering people this bridge work between what they were raised with that wasn't healthy and realizing it and then deconstructing it and reconstructing something else. Um, I, I'm really proud of the work that you're doing and I'm really honored that you joined up with us. And I would hope that people, if they're benefiting from it, consider maybe going on to emancipateyourmind.org, click the donate button and send a few bucks Terry's way. And uh, I'm hoping over the course of a few years here that we can really help you to kind of maximize uh, the work you're doing so that you can spend as much time as possible doing this. Cause I think you're helping a ton of people. Uh, my favorite comment, Britt brought this to my attention, I think. My favorite comment thus far about your podcast was that somebody was kind of bothered that suddenly these 55 episodes just had dropped. And uh, then the person said, but now I, I'm binging and I'm on episode 21. And to me, that just says everything. Like, give it a shot. Pick a few out that have been mentioned today. Give them a listen and see if they're helpful. Because I think the person who's in that real traumatic stage of going like this, this thing may not be true. And I really want to start to process that. I think your podcast is as good as any uh, for doing you. that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I love, was, can I just say, I love this picture too. Oh, that let me put picture it back up. That, I love it because you're just, you're just beaming. Like you're, you're like you just are like your inner and outer beauty. You're just beaming and like, you know, your porn shoulders are showing, you know, and it just, it's a reclaiming of your shoulders that you have these human things called shoulders and you're just really beaming. So I just really love that picture from a female perspective. Thank you so much. Just you're that you're modeling, like... you're modeling that. <laughs> that dress was such a step outside of my comfort box mm -hmm. whenever I first purchased it. But yeah, I've, done a lot of work on reclaiming, reclaiming my body as well as yeah. my emotions and my identity. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Those, those shoulders. <laughs> and thank you. <laughs> and thank you, Bill, for mentioning that one comment. Cause I actually screenshot that and saved it in a folder on my phone. I loved that comment. He yeah. called it mushy brain stuff. <laughs> you downloaded 50 episodes of mushy brain stuff. And I was like, I love yeah. that. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's the goal, right? The goal is for all of us, you know, I think there's 11 podcasts right now currently running. Some of them are much more inside. Some of them try to walk a line. Some of them are helping us deconstruct. Others are helping us reconstruct things on the other side. I'm just really proud of the work that's coming out of this umbrella at the moment. 
and uh, just really glad to have you on board and uh, hope people that will check it out, emancipateyourmind.org. Anything else from the two of you as we kind of close the episode out? Just a reminder to people that Bill and I are just working so hard to grow this podcast and find people like Terry, who just obviously had such, you know, such a voice to offer to all of us, so many mm. resources to offer all of us. And Bill and I are all are trying to find all these people and bring them, um, you know, sometimes under the umbrella or at least interview them for these podcasts. And so as we're growing this podcast, please, if you listen to this, if it was helpful for you anyway, please donate so that we can yeah. know that we can keep doing this work. Um, yeah. You know, otherwise, if there's, you know, if we don't know that it's helping people, then we go on to other projects that we know will help people because a lot of us have multiple projects going on. So yeah. help us know that this was helpful for you by donating to the podcast. Love it. And if you're aware of somebody, somebody who's articulate and has experience and expertise in a field, uh, let us know. And we'd love to reach out to them and see if we can't set up an interview. We, there we well. do take those emails seriously. We had a couple ask for Noah Rochetta. And so we definitely got him on board coming on. Um, so we do read and, and respond to those emails. If you have a voice you really want to um, have on the podcast and have Bill and I talk to, um, let us know. We take those emails really seriously. Perfect. Uh, Terry, I just want to say thank you. Britt and I are so grateful to have uh, some of your time today and for us to be able to talk about your work. And uh, folks, I would just suggest tune in. I think it um, healing is what your work has been for me. Thank you. No, thank you. This has been an honor to be on here with both of you and to just get to talk and, and to bask in your light. Both of you bring just a really fun energy and it's been, it has been a spiritual practice to be here with you yeah, today. So thank you. Same. Ditto. Back at you. Check us out, folks, almostawakened.org. And uh, look forward to uh, next week. Uh, have fun, you guys, and then have a great day. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsense spirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.